Locked on NBA Thursday edition. I'm joined by Sam Amick of The Athletic. And uh, I thought we were going to have a relatively um, non-eventful show today to talk about. But that is not true because the L.A. Clippers have done some interesting things. Frankly, the Utah Jazz, while losing in five games, did some interesting things. And then we've got some great Eastern Conference series to preview plus Denver-San Antonio game five or game six. So uh, lots here. Um, Sam, let's start with the Clippers last night. You were there. How stunning. Very. Uh, it's funny, David, that I my first round playoff routine this year in my first playoff go-round at the Athletic is such that I was going to cover home games of the Warriors because it's an hour and a half from where I live. And then other than that, kind of monitor everything from home remotely. And so I, I bring that up because uh, this is now two home Warriors games in a row that I have contemplated not attending because I simply didn't have to, and I thought maybe I'd be better suited making calls at home. And then in the end, was happy that I went because there was a lot more meat on the bone, so to speak, than I ever could have imagined. So the the Clippers come back from 31 down in game two. Uh, Nobody saw that coming. And then this thing... You know, you you have a Clippers team that just won't quit, and a Warriors team that now, you know, like cue the hyperbolic, dramatic, you know, background music here. But I mean, they have a crisis of collective character, I think, when it comes to the way they compete and the 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 roller coaster ride they continue to, you know, self induced they continue to be on. And when they lost to the Clippers in Game Two. You know, Clay Thompson said something that stuck in my head where he said, basically, like, unacceptable, but I tell you what, like, this is not going to happen for the rest of the playoffs. Like, this type of a letdown. It didn't mean they wouldn't lose, but, you know, they should not be losing to these Clippers with all due respect to this this group. But the Clippers have got something special going. They, uh, they've they got a group that is aware of the moment and the fact that, not only are they, you know, the team that nobody thought would even be here, but there's a bigger picture in play. And not that this is their focus, but, I mean, man, the value of these wins for Steve Ballmer and Lawrence Frank and Jerry West and Michael Winger and that group as they try to get into this summer in free agency and make some noise and the optics that come, you know, with what they are doing right now, it's just it's it's a good time for them and, uh, and a tough time for the Warriors. Ben Golliver uh, here on Locked on NBA, I thought made a really interesting comment about the Warriors um, after the thirty point law thirty point lead they lost, and he said, "We just have to be stop. We have to just look at them as an underperforming team. That's what they are. With the amount of talent they had, they should have won sixty five, seventy games. They're an underperforming team. Now that he may underperform all the way to the title, but they're an underperforming team. And I thought that was a really good point." And I thought that was the right prism by which, hundred percent. And, and then it be, you know, then you get into the psychological aspect of for them, their counter would be, okay, great, but that's you know that is the the premise might be faulty because we don't care about the regular season. We care about health. We care about you know keeping as much gas in the tank as possible. Things of that nature. But I hear you. They they are, and they are, you know like the old Bulls teams, like the old Lakers teams, they're trying to to kind of gain the system a little bit when it comes to the way you approach the marathon. And that's just a really tough game to play from the mental side because 
these athletes, these players are, are trained to, you know, compete every single time out. And it, it, they've reached a point where it's basically fighting against that voice in your head that says, you know, is it April yet? Is it May yet? And that's what they're up against. So it's true. They're underperforming. We just didn't think that mattered. And, and we're seeing right now that it does. The Clippers are much better than people realize. They they were actually very good after the trade deadline. They have great depth. I probably would like every one of their players on my team. Um, are we underestimating how good the Clippers are, or the fact that the Clippers scoring you know 133 points per 100 possessions last night more an indictment that maybe, particularly on the defensive end, the Warriors don't have what they once had. Uh, yeah, it's it's both. I mean, the Clippers are better offensively than people give them credit for. The Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell thing should be enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I mean, it's so much fun to watch. It's darn near unstoppable, and and it's just it's got this this incredible combination of like swag and it, you know Montrez's aggressiveness and just the, I love the way the dude attacks the rim. And I mean, Lou Williams last night just putting people on skates. Somebody, you know, I think kind of compared it to a, like a DJ out there. It's just a basketball DJ. It's fun to watch. So that's – and then from there, I mean, when Gallinari's hitting shots, uh, you know, and the young guys they have doing good work, I think they were seventh in the league in offensive rating, which is something that I don't think most folks would, would believe. And then, yeah, the Warriors' defense is not what it once was. Last night, a lot of eyeballs on Draymond Green. And as a unit, as a group, the lack of connectivity between them all. Um, and you know, and those things are bearing out right now. And the the Clippers again, though, you, you can't say enough about their mindset and the fact that they defensively, with Pat Beverly certainly setting the tone, but Jamichael Green all of a sudden, you know, doing good work and some of the versatility that he brings to the table. You know, even other guys, you know, kind of role players, Garrett Temple, guys like that, they just get into you and they they get after it. I mean, they've got a lot of grit. They've got a Again, that attitude where this is all house money, and uh, it's kind of fun to watch. So when we went to halftime last night in Houston, I came out and said, let me flip the perspective for a moment and talk about the Rockets. As the Rockets entered, I said, at this moment, I would say I think the Rockets have about a 30% chance to win the title. They're 45-55 against the Warriors, and they'd probably be 45-55 against um, whatever Eastern Conference team they played. They have about a 30% chance to win the title. However, I said, if they lose game five and have to jump on a plane to play the Jazz on Friday and then either win that and play immediately Sunday against the Warriors or lose that and come back to play Sunday at home and then have to fly to Golden State and make all of those flights, that I think their chances drop to about 10%, that the fatigue would be real. What about from the Warrior perspective? Now, it's only San Francisco to L.A., and they if they win six, they host Sunday, but with no prep time at all, uh, to get the, get ready for game one. By the way, Sunday's not set yet, but I think we all know how this works. Um, what is your thought on how much that loss last night will impact the Warriors from a fatigue standpoint that impacts their run while the Rockets are now done? It's huge. I mean, for one... The Rockets, man, they just keep checking all the right boxes. Um, they keep focused in the kind of way that the Warriors are not. You know, I laughed a little bit. I sound like the Antonis 
presser last night where Tim McMahon of ESPN asked him about the Warriors. And I don't know if you caught this, but when Mike with that kind of West Virginian, aw shucks persona, he smiles. He says, isn't it a little bit early? And you could tell he didn't want to disrespect the Clippers. And, you know, but so they have a little fun back and forth. And I'm sitting there watching this going, man, look at this. Like this, that's a nice place to be in for the Rockets because now you're having a little fun waiting around to see who it's going to be. You know, and you still probably know who it's going to be, and that's who you want because the Rockets are absolutely locked in on these Warriors, and the history that comes with these two teams is setting up for a hell of a second-round series, and, and the fatigue that you're talking about is it's a big deal. I mean, the Warriors right now are not only a team that seems to deal with the inconsistency that I mentioned, but they, you know, let's not forget, I'm not, I'm not trying to go too far down this road, but like the DeMarcus Cousins injury – at minimum, was it was just a it was a tweak of their formula, where that's something that they have not had that much time to deal with and, and figure out rotations and you know and, and get right on that front. Um, they have a core of players who, as talented as they are, man, they just they seem to really be struggling more than ever before with who goes you know who you go I go who's going first who's going second how's this going to function. Um, they play differently. Kevin wants to ISO one night, and then he's going to, you know, go the Steve Kerr way and go the other way. But, you know, I think St- uh, Steph and Clay and those guys are not kind of sure as much as they used to be what the identity was on a consistent basis. So that's a lot to unpack. But, I mean, the, the travel fatigue stuff and the timing is, is definitely a factor. Uh, I think you make a great point on DeMarcus. We can, and actually against Houston, when they switch and you have a smaller guy and DeMarcus could go pin him, he probably would be really important. Um, on the pick and roll stuff, he'd be really a problem. But um, So there's pros and cons. But I think the best point you make there, Sam, is the fact that they spent three months with it. You know, they th- spent, they wait, they, indirectly, they wasted three and a half months of trying to get DeMarcus in, and now that, you know, that doesn't really do anything for them. Um, We'll look at the contrast of the Warriors and Rockets and their attitude or approach last night, which is a bit surprising when we continue. NFL Draft is today locked on NFL Draft. Draft dudes both all over, as is locked on NFL. And if you want to binge listen to our best program we've ever put together on the network, the Locked on NFL five-day mock draft will take you through all picks today. It's a large binge watch, though, binge listen, so you better get on it right away. Back with Sam Amick of The Athletic. You can read his stuff by subscribing to The Athletic. The contrast to me of last night, and maybe, again, you know, we all have a tendency to make a bigger deal out of this, but I wasn't there and watched it online or watched it while driving. The Warriors come out, they, the 80 points are scored in the first quarter. To me, that's a sign like, all right, we're just going to go out and score you. They can't do it. They take the lead. They, then the Rockets, the Clippers take the lead. Then it's like, all right, we'll just put on our late, push which they do but then the Clippers answer the contrast was the Rockets last night the Rockets with the Jazz having some momentum out of game four came out right away and went on I think it was a about a 10 to 2 run or 8-0 run to open the game they go on 11-1 run to close the first half and they open the third quarter and basically ended the game though the Jazz rallied back and Ricky Rubio had a three from the left corner for the lead he airballed with a minute left um yeah you know, so the Jazz battled back, but they opened the third quarter on the 8-0 run or a 10-2 run. Like, that's, to me, that's like cha- that was championship mentality out of the Rockets. I'm with you, and that's what they look like right now. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny, David, all year long, we, we kind of ask ourselves, like, at what point are we allowed to deduce 
anything real from the way a team competes as it in, in terms of the question of is this truly part of who they are and is it going to hold up late in the season and i mean if you can't start saying that now then i mean i don't know when you can start saying it the rockets have looked that way since mid-december which is another thing to note like anybody who hasn't noticed this is a very large sample size at this point very good team that just took care of the jazz again and and looks more than capable of knocking off this kind of wayward warriors group and they are competing and they are not only trying to get to the ultimate prize, but they are being sharp enough to give themselves every little possible competitive edge. Well, you know, we talked about that stuff earlier, the, the timing, the fatigue, the scheduling stuff that comes into play this time of year, because from a human component, these guys have been doing this since October. And are you kidding me? Like all of a sudden, James and Chris, especially Chris with his, you know, old man body at this point in NBA terms, having the ability to just get treatment, get rest, be home and wait to see who you play. That's huge. Uh, The Jazz did some weird things defensively. The national narrative got formed and no one's actually, in my opinion, maybe this is being a little bit of a homer, paid attention to actually what happened afterwards. Um, The Rockets had. Uh, three of their worst offensive nights of the year, three of their 15 worst offensive nights of the year to close this series. Um, And James Harden was not particularly good, frankly. Um, He made some big plays late, but he was 10 of 26 last night. He he really struggled at the end of the series. What's interesting to me leaving this series is the Rockets' defense looks pretty good. Offensively, I actually have some concerns on the Rockets. One is the Chris Paul-led second unit is not playoff ready. Chris Paul cannot create space anymore um, anywhere other than at 16 to 22 feet when he fades back. And the other one, but I don't know if it's replicable, is there is now a script out there on how to defend James Harden, which is get on literally his outside, his top side, prevent him from shooting threes and taking that step back, which he's great at and force him into the floater. And until he made the final three, which were awesome late, he was four of 27 on the floater in the series. But is that, can the, can the Warriors replicate it? I was talking to some of the Rockets people after the game last night and some of the Rockets players. And they say, well, the Warriors just guard us straight up. We don't have to deal with this stuff. Um, is this something that can be replicated or is this frankly, if you have Rudy Gobert and Derek favors, and you have a unique combination of bigs, you can do this and nobody else can replicate it. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably go with the latter. I mean, because that floater was the latest evolution in his game, you know, during the regular season. If you look at the fact that, you know, a lot of focus on the step back three with good reason, it's it's controversial, is it, is it legal? And then he obviously got so good at it and led the league by a large margin in step back threes. But the floater... Um, is something that he added, uh, you know, reacting to the market, so to speak, and the way he was defending last year. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, I mean, he shot a ton more floaters this year than he had last year, and he was far more efficient. I talked to Mike D'Antoni about that, and that was that was the latest wrinkle. That was the, uh, the evolution of James Harden. But when you have Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors down there, that's going to that's gonna change your percentages. And, the numbers, you know, that you just dropped, I wasn't aware of. I mean, that's all the evidence that you need. The Warriors don't have that. Now they do. I mean, certainly nothing close to the caliber of Rudy or Derek, but it's for them. I mean, who who could have imagined the idea that a Andrew Bogut signing was going to be so important when they picked him up uh, in light of the Cousins injury and, and their lack of bigs? You know, Bogut's the closest thing they're going to have with Kevon Looney and, 
to that kind of rim defense. And can they top block James and try to do that? I don't know. You know, Steve Kerr, Ron Adams, their defensive guru, they're going to have to figure that out. Um, just a quick funny moment that you made me think of. You know, last night I was at that Warriors game, but in the press room, a, a ton of media members watching the end of the Rockets Jazz game, and they were uh, top blocking James and I think it was Rubio on that particular possession late and Mark Spears of ESPN had got a laugh out of me because he kind of loudly said, he's like, man, what is he doing? And everybody in the room was like top locking. Duh. Like, <laughs> like it's this thing that the vernacular is, is now, you know, we all know what it is. And it certainly worked pretty well, not well enough to the tune of the jazz pulling off this series, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd be shocked if the Warriors didn't try to replicate that. I'll give you a big picture thought. Um, we probably should talk about in one of our off-season shows, but since it's prevalent, I thought this was an interesting comment somebody made to me. The Jazz regarding James Harden literally from behind. Okay? Right. And they were like, this is a testament to two items. One, the greatness of James Harden, and two, how jacked up the league's rules have become. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, it is the correct defense now to play behind somebody. It looks stupid. <laughs> it looks ridiculous. And it's because right. the league has, he said, if you guard in front of him, the, every rule in the book goes to the offensive player. If you touch him, it's a foul. If he dives into you, it's a foul. Right. right. He said, secondarily, they are not legislating the offhand at all. So if you get in front of him, you're actually giving him the leverage by which to push off on you to be able to get to his step back, which he hits at 40%. The league rules have now created an environment in where it's so impossible to defend that the right move is to stand behind an offensive player. It proved out to be true as the series went on. This was said to me early, and this person's point was, that's beeped. That's effed up. And the league yeah. has got to do something if we've gotten to the point in which it's a smarter play to play behind someone. You're not going to take away Harden's talents, but really, truly to me, the league has got to legislate the off-arm. We're going to see it with Giannis. Giannis just lowers and pushes off of the off-arm all game, and they just let him right. do it. And you've got, we've got to start legislating the off-arm. Yeah, I mean, like always, I think the league, competition committee, things like that, you know, they are to a degree um, – vulnerable to public pressure to the optics you know if if last night became the norm that type of extreme defense on a consistent basis and then the conversation became that the nba was broken or at least you know a little messed up then then you probably see legislation follow and maybe that is the direction that we're heading and maybe this will be a flashpoint moment in that regard uh i mean it's right now it's you know, and I wasn't obviously there in person, but, you know, it, it's entertaining, at least from the standpoint of like, wow, what do we come to? Um, but you're right. I mean, it's it's bizarre. That was even the story of, you know, Spears and his reaction. You know, that's what he was reacting to was basically what the hell is he doing right now? Like, it looks silly. But to your point, it's the right play. So it's 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 another thing we'll have to monitor. Uh, 
including on this show, um, since I listen to this show all the time, many of the hosts have not thought it was the right play. I will just back it up with Harden shot 37% from the field, 35% from three. He went to the free throw line uh, only four times last night. The Rockets' offensive rating in the last three games of the series was 99, 94, and 101. Their league average, their season average was 12, 112. So they uh, finished the la- about 17 points below their season average in the last three games. It's Milwaukee right. played it earlier this year and stymied them. The Jazz played it and stymied them. I'll be curious to see if they go to the NBA. If it's Milwaukee-Houston, the NBA Finals, not only will Adam Silver die for the TV ratings, but that will be uh, the matchup. I want to make one other comment before we flip to the Eastern Conference. Um, if I was a Clipper fan listening to this, I'd be pissed. Um, the, the five of you out there, no, I'm just kidding, um, should be. Um, one. Uh, now they're pissed. Yeah, now they're pissed. Um, actually, they know. If they're on their own Clipper Island, they've been there with nobody else around, and now they have a bunch of L.A. Band- Laker fans who've had to trade in their jerseys and are trying to join right. them on the bandwagon. So they probably, the five of you, they're true Clipper fans. I respect you and admire you. Um, I thought this was a great comment by someone to me, which was, um, this is a brutal series for Steve Kerr because he knows the other team is going to play harder. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's an interesting impact, I think, on um, oh, on a coach. Yeah. Well, listen, and this kind of – I think this got written by uh, Ethan Strauss at our place, and I was there in person. So after game two when they dropped the 31-point lead, Doc Rivers is leaving his locker room to go do his media and Steve Kerr has already done his media. He's coming out. They say hello. They embrace. And, I mean, Steve, I think it's fair enough to share. I mean, at this point, Steve's trying to rally his troops. Steve looks at Doc, and he he compliments how hard they play. And I forget how he phrased it, but it was basically, you know, just, man, they play hard. And he shakes his head, and he goes, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm envious. You know, and it was a hell of a statement to hear out of his mouth. Like, you know, the, the Warriors have the most envious roster perhaps in the history of basketball. But what they don't have at the moment is the kind of competitive spirit that the Clippers have. And the Rockets, you know, I think could potentially check that box as well. Now, the Warriors are going to, you know, the the rivalry itself is going to wake them up in a way that they are not awake right now with the Clippers. But still, you just can't kind of float in and out like that and still expect to get where you want to go. Looking at the Eastern Conference and a quick look at Denver-San Antonio as well, but more at the Eastern Conference when we continue with the Athletics. Sam Amick, follow Locked on NBA Net on on Instagram and get all the latest big stories of the day, kind of almost a news feed of what's going on in the NBA on your Instagram, Locked on NBA Net. I have not dug deep into these uh, matchups that will start here um, over the weekend with the, with the Philadelphia 76ers and the Toronto Raptors and the... Uh, Boston Celtics and Milwaukee, but the, it's going to be great. The one that's really interesting me a little bit is the Boston Milwaukee matchup. Um, there's some part I don't I don't have the identity of who Boston is, which may turn out to be their advantage. Sam, like when you look at who they are offensively, they're not really a pick and roll team. They're not really a drive team. They're actually one of the worst isolation teams in the league. They they don't run up. They're you know, they're like 20th in the league in handoffs. They're about eight, eight, 13th in the league in isolations. They don't post up. They Maybe this is to their advantage. They're 21st in the league in the amount of picks they run. They're kind of just a spot-up shooting team, but that's a little bit of what Milwaukee kind of lets you do. I just don't know if I think Boston has good enough shooters to take advantage of Milwaukee allowing as many above-the-break threes as they do. 
Yep. I mean, that's all sound breakdown. I'm guilty of, uh, you know, this time of year, it's hard to track everything. So I, you know, the, the Milwaukee series, it's tough to get a real sense of, of where they're at simply because of the Detroit matchup and most of it being without Blake Griffin, you know, but they did what they're supposed to do in Boston. You know, if nothing else, the stuff you're talking about tactically is going to come into play. And then it's just a case of, you know, can they execute on the Celtic side, but man, they're in a good place right now. And defensively, especially, and Kyrie being a superstar and, and doing what he went there to do. And Gordon Hayward, your old friend, uh, you know, coming along health-wise and looking a whole lot more like the guy that he used to be. They, I, I did not think a couple months ago that they would have any kind of legitimate crack at the Bucks, And, and, and now I still would certainly be picking the Bucks, but I think uh, it could be a good series. I do think we have to be really careful here. The opening Eastern Conference series was a joke. I'm, I'm the only thing that surprised me it didn't go 16-0, right? Those four teams were awful. Yeah. I mean, none 100%. of those none of those four teams are as good as the Clippers, right? Like, none of those teams are as good as the yeah, Timberwolves. But the, none of those teams. But I, I'll say, yeah, you're right. But, I mean, Boston's, Boston had been dysfunctional enough that they they just avoided, the, the, you know, the, the kind of setback that, that we might have seen based on their locker room makeup, based on – you know, the Brad Stevens at different times having a hard time figuring out who his group was. So, I mean, I hear you, but I still, you know, it, it's momentum for a team that, that was off the tracks not too long ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not buying. I mean, Atlanta won, excuse me, Indiana after the Oladipo injury won like four games against teams that are above 500. Right. I mean, they just weren't, you know, they, they really took it. They simply of, can't score. Yeah and, so, yeah. and they played with Boston every single game of that series, but, almost till about the five minute mark when then you had to score. And then their best player was Boyan Bonjanovic. I mean, I guess. Yeah. So the fact that Boston didn't pl- commit basketball, Harry Carey for a night, they deserve credit, I guess. I'm just not really <laughs> willing to like, go there. Um, it's just, you know, I think the interesting one, and we'll switch gears here in a second to me is, so just so everyone knows this one, the, the Milwaukee Bucks defensive philosophy this year has been to kind of allow threes allow a, a lot of above – they allow the most threes in the league. They allow the most above-the-break threes, and they try to choose who's going to shoot them. Boston as a team is the seventh-best or sixth-best above-the-break three-point shooting team. That's probably what this series is going to come down to because the other thing that just incredibly Milwaukee's done this year is not let people get to the rim at an incredible rate. Only 30% of opponent's shots were at the rim this year. That, that number is, is stunning um, compared to the rest of the league. And so that, to me, will be like the league average shots at the rim is about 36%. They allow 30. Um, Golden State's the second best at denying the rim. And then everybody else is at 33 34% in a really quick moment. So for Milwaukee to only allow 30% of the shots at the rim, they sacrifice. They they allow the above the break three to do that, but it's um, and it's the right math. But it's going to be interesting to see if a good team can exploit that. For the sake of levity, and I almost shared this story earlier, um, since we both have kids and enjoy our, our families, and this relates to what you're saying. You know, earlier you're talking about the way Utah defended Harden, and you gave me a, a little flashback to uh, the the latest pickup basketball game with myself and about seven or eight neighborhood kids where I was the captain of the boys team and all the girls were on the perimeter. And I, I sat there watching my little guys chase them 25 feet away from the hoop 
And and I finally had to call timeout, bring the whole group in and say, guys, they, they can't shoot from beyond seven feet. Like, let's just sit in the middle here. So we played box defense and it worked. <laughs> and it was the right call at that point. And we got, you know, I think, zero percent shots at the rim. Um, but yeah, I mean, Milwaukee's formula is a trip. And as an aside, it also makes me think of, man, like, is there a, a more, um, you know, valuable pickup uh, of the last summer than Brooke Lopez? And when it comes to just a role player who, who helps the whole thing work, you know, and Giannis is incredible and he's the epicenter of what they do. And if Brooke moves on down the line, then, you know, they're going to still keep winning games. But his ability to help defend at the rim and then stretch the floor on the offensive end is, is something that uh, is a, a huge X factor for them. That was a great pickup. And I think a lot of, you know, it was one of those pickups that if you paid attention, I think most people kind of said they thought it was brilliant when it happened. Um, and then I don't think Rob Polinka said that. I just well, throw that in there. Well, maybe that's just the model <laughs> is to go get any X Laker. Um, by the way, interesting note on this series, the best offensive team. Now the, the margins can some, the better offensive team has won every series so far. Assuming the Warriors beat the Clippers, the Spurs and Nuggets are the exact same offensively. But the better offensive okay. team has won every series. So the Bucks were the fourth best offense at 113.5, and the Celtics were the tenth best. That's a pretty okay. similar. Toronto and Philadelphia are within a point of each other. So I don't know that we have the separation that we had in the first round, but um, that is at least keeping an eye on. The Warriors and Rockets are separated by point one if they play each other. So there's no model there. Uh, to pick up on Portland is better, a little bit better, but they, they've slimmed up. I mean, basically the eight best offensive teams, um, with the exception of the loser of the Spurs-Nuggets game, are going to be the teams that advance to the second round. It's, a, it's an interesting little moment in the league because what I think happened is that the offenses have become so great that even if you're impactful defensively, you better have an offense that can match it because the, the good offenses are so great. Um, so we're offense wins championships. Are we changing the cliche? Uh, that, I think so. I mean, there's two things going on. Offenses are winning, and then I haven't done the research on this. I'll have it coming up. But what I, in my metric that I use to evaluate players, negative offensive players um, are all at Every high usage, negative, below average offensive player is out, I think. Interesting. Um, I just don't think you can survive. That's Russell. Well, and it, it, that goes back to what you mentioned about just the legislation of the game itself and the rules and, and you know, where where these scales have been tilted by the league when it comes to, you know, what's a priority and what's not. I think that's every high-level defender in the league would hear this podcast and just sit there nodding their head saying, yep, because we can't do what we do, you know, especially on that stage. So it's interesting. Any thoughts on Philadelphia in Toronto? I mean, you know, I like the the headliners in that in that matchup are a lot of fun. I mean, you have so much at stake for both organizations. Uh, you know, coaching wise, I think Brett Brown needs to put up a fight to keep his job. That would be my read of that situation. Um, you have the looming free agency. I mean, these are some of the biggest names of the summer, obviously, in this series with Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris on one side, Kawhi Leonard on the other. You know, I, everybody still thinks Kawhi's heading west around the league, but, you know, you, you've got to leave that door open for if Toronto just, I mean, if they go win the whole darn thing, then you just can't ignore that. So that'll be a fun one. I mean, the defense of the Raptors uh, with this new Marcus Gasol iteration 
that has been so good and Pascal Siakam doing good things and the way those guys have been connected lately. Uh, I mean, they're so good defensively that, you know, I'm curious to see if they just really cause fits for a Sixers offense that it just is still forming its identity. You're only talking about essentially two months of experience with, you know, the Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Harris Butler, you know, quartet figuring out how they work. It probably doesn't bode well for Philly in that regard. Uh, you know, I'd be picking the Raptors in this one, but, you know, I think it'll be fun. Another one of my cute little shot distribution notes. I'm obviously a big believer in this, but keep an eye on this one if you're watching this series. The Raptors take the third most amount of corner threes and are the fourth best team at, at making them. Philadelphia allows the fewest corner threes and is the fifth best at defending them. So that'll be a little interesting. Clearly, one offense is predicated on that. Um, sure. You go take away some – it sounds silly, go just the corner three. You go take away – 10% of someone's offensive shot distribution of where they like to shoot and how their offense is predicated and where their floor is spaced, you're screwing with them. Like, Toronto's right. not a rim team. Toronto's in the bottom third of the league of getting to the rim. They are a three-point shooting, some mid-range with Kawhi team, and if you go take that away and move those shots, that will disrupt them significantly. Well, and stating the obvious, too, I mean, Joel Embiid's health is something we got to keep monitoring, you know, in terms of his load and just the fact that he's been somewhat unreliable on that front. I mean, that's, you know, certainly a potential game changer. And the, uh, the resiliency of that group to deal with the drama of Joel's injury on a nightly basis is pretty incredible. I, I, right. It's almost as though they cherish the moment when he decides he's not playing, and that's their way of working through it. That Those guys just step. You know, what's funny about that, though, is like, it, for one, I, I think it's actually increasing the odds of Jimmy Butler staying in Philly because it's making him feel more needed. Um, which is a, a fascinating dynamic because I mean, you could make you know you could have made that same argument you made about Joel about Jimmy in his Minnesota days, right? Like when he disappeared, they all you know they all wanted to play harder because of the the, the mood in the room at that time and with that team. But you know you're right. I mean they uh, they but they have a guy in Jimmy that if you need him to be the alpha male, he's sitting there waiting to do that at every possible opportunity. It's one to keep an eye on that lineup when they have their four starters on the floor is un- their four stars with J.J. Redick is unbelievable. So as much time as they yeah. can get with that lineup, I think it's plus 22 for the regular season. It's it's by far the, the best five-man lineup that's available out there. It will be interesting to see. All right, Sam, great to see. Continue to follow the Sacramento Kings stories you are on The Athletic. He's got an update on there at The Athletic. Um, I think we'll be turning our focus to the Oklahoma's continuing – to follow Oklahoma City here and see what happens down there. So interesting times uh, in the NBA, as always. And enjoy the Clippers-Warriors Game 6. And for all you know, you got a Game 7. I wouldn't doubt those Clippers. Thank you, buddy. Talk to you next time. Thanks, David. See you.